Welcome to the Med Street Journal. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Med Street Journal podcast. My name is Rodney Hu, your host as always. And today I'm joined by another very special guest, Mr. Ryan Grant. He is a CEO and founder of Bori Health, and he's a healthcare entrepreneur and neurosurgeon. So I'm excited to have him on, give an opportunity to share what they're doing over at Bori Health. And so with that being said, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. Why don't we just jump into it? Why don't you give people a brief background of your story, your journey, how you got into healthcare and ended up a healthcare entrepreneur? Yeah, no, my pleasure. Been fascinated by medicine and the brain since I was a kid. Always watched those medical shows. Just really loved anatomy and learning about it and the science and eventually got attracted to the neurosurgical field first by the brain and then got more interested in the spine and the biomechanics and all the tools that are used to reconstruct it. Um, always also liked business and entrepreneurship. So always a healthy disrespect would be the best word of the status quo. Just because we do something a certain way doesn't mean that it makes sense in today's day and age. And can you do it better? How do you think it makes more efficiently? How do you help more people? And Built my first company when I was my preteen years and now focused on healthcare entrepreneurship and transforming care delivery. And given that uh, spine surgeon by training, starting in the musculoskeletal, which is back, neck, hip, knee, et cetera, sector of the space. Okay, nice, nice. So that's interesting that you went from a doctor to an entrepreneur and usually when people get to that point in their career and becoming a doctor, like you would think that'd be like the end game, but not for you. Like you're not content. So can you bring us back to that moment that really made you want to take that leap into entrepreneurship and start your own company? Yeah. Um, going back though, it start, started my first company before I went into medicine and then built and founded a company while I was training in medicine and got into medical device development. And so I had those two worlds blend it's only been more recently in my career that I wanted to or, or felt that inner passion to focus on entrepreneurship full time. I would actually say that entrepreneurship is really a mindset, trying to build things better, really fulfill an unmet need of society, somebody truly build a solution that can work better. And I think that being an, anybody can really be an entrepreneur, it's the biggest thing is really a mindset. and. Same question that you just asked is countless people have reached out to me with that question regarding their own journey from both inside and outside medicine of why did I actually leave my medical practice to start this company and be part of it full time and really don't view it as walking away from medicine, but rather an evolution of my skill set and being a practicing neurosurgeon at Yale University and then Geisinger Medical Center was certainly an honor especially with those who trusted me with their lives and those who trusted their loved ones with my care. But looking back, my initial traction to neurosurgery that was fueled by the electrical intricacies that we call the mind, going through all that training and eventually moving into spine, desire to help significantly more people at a global level is a much stronger passion than practicing neurosurgery directly. For lack of a better word, being an individual Physician does not scale. Doesn't mean you don't drive value. Doesn't mean you don't help people. But if you want to help millions and millions of people, you either have to build a company, you have to invent a medical device or invent a pharmaceutical or something that can actually reach 
many people in the healthcare sector. And given the amount of this organization and the healthcare sector, passion inside of me is to dedicate 100% of my time trying to transform this healthcare delivery system, starting with the musculoskeletal segment. And that's where we are. Nice. So you mentioned a couple of things that really stuck out to me. One is your evolution of your skill set. Like you're never being content with just learning something and then just applying that knowledge. You have a, a growth mindset of continuing to grow and learn and how to apply that information to different aspects of your life. And also like how you mentioned being able to scale. Obviously, you're one person. You only have so much time and energy without your day, but being able to bring on other key members, other players to help you really tackle a problem that the industry is facing, I feel like that's way more effective. And so when it comes to Bori Health and the company that you created, what is the main problem that you guys are looking to tackle within the industry? And how are you guys going about that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. The musculoskeletal sector, which again is back, neck, hip, knee, shoulder, most of it being pain, is the top cause of global disability. Mental health is number two. And so this is something that touches every nation. The prevalence in the United States is 54%. So it's one in two people who actually will suffer from a musculoskeletal condition. And 80 to 90% will have a musculoskeletal pain episode or something happened to them on a musculoskeletal basis during their lifetime. It is, a top, it is one of the top expenditures in the United States and plus the world. The way the healthcare system is structured in the United States, most people get their health care through their employer benefits. And then the next largest group is paid through like by Medicare or Medicaid, government systems. It's rare that people or the smallest sector of health insurance in the United States is actually people going to buy it on a public exchange themselves. So most people get it through their employer. And when you look at self-insured employers, their, their health plans, the top spend for 90% of them is the musculoskeletal sector. That's one of the top three spends in the United States. Again, it's the top cause of global disability. And it goes further than that. Of, there's a huge amount of unnecessary surgery that's occurring. Mm. And so depending on which literature you pull, estimates are 25 to 50% of the spine surgeries done across the planet aren't really indicated or the indications are just too loose. And so as we sit here and talk, thousands of people who are on the operating room table shouldn't necessarily be there. Um, joints is a little bit better, but we do too much surgery across the planet. Not enough people actually go through an integrated non-operative program. Evidence-based medicine is not really followed. We really used MRIs and imaging like Instagram. They're heavily overutilized. There's a huge misunderstanding by a society of what an image can actually do. And most of the time, it can't actually tell with certainty what's driving somebody's pain. It can sometimes allude to it, but not with always certainty. And then society also makes this assumption that people's images should be perfect in their mind. If you have gray hair or wrinkles, we're finding arthritis in anything we scan. So the analogy would be the arthritis of your face is wrinkles and the arthritis of your hair is turning gray or balding. You start to see that in people in their late 20s, early 30s. And so it's actually unusual not to find anything. And so part of it's also teaching people that when we should redo some of the words, it's not abnormal imaging findings to find disc bulges. It's like in someone who's 40, like 
it's more abnormal to find everything looks pristine, like you were wearing your 20s. So really, we use the imaging when people only have pain as a map for potential surgical procedures if someone does not reach their goals through a non-operative program, which includes health coaching and physical therapy, heavy education. You have to work with people about, learn about their body. Um, people have to know that this is pretty common. A lot of people are very fearful. And most people don't need surgery. Most people don't need an image. And so we don't have great evidence that if you're only having pain, not to minimize how uncomfortable somebody can be, like people can be in tears, that you really have to have surgery. It's more, those are quality of life operations. Is your quality of life poor enough or not up to your standard and nothing else has worked that you would consider surgery for your own life? It actually should be the patient's decision. And it tends to be across the planet, medical teams telling you, you should have surgery versus, well, you could, it's an option, but you don't have to. And that's not a small nuance. And so we're building a system <clears throat> that starts over. It's, it's, we employ physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, physical therapists, health coaches, nurses, social workers, registered dietitian, which is a type of nutritionist and put them into evidence-based care teams to actually take care of people in a holistic way that follows the evidence that actually puts the patient at the center. I would challenge you or anybody listening to this podcast, when's the last time your physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, whoever you saw last, actually asked you about what you thought about the care plan or what actually your goals are? Not often. <laughs> Not often. The answer is usually never or not often. So that's it's not that people are bad people. I was trained to be like that. Not you don't ask. You don't ask the patient. You tell them. And when you go and medicine is very dehumanized. It's how we were trained. So if you walk around a hospital with a physician, it's like that's the fifty-two-year-old ruptured aneurysm. That's the forty-eight-year-old with COVID. That's the thirty-two-year-old who just had a heart attack and we really just name diseases and put ages on it. We, we, we tend not to think about the individual person behind it and their name and their family. How are they emotionally handling their care? What are they scared about? And very too heavily biological of disease, disease process, treated disease process. But we tend to forget to treat the actual person's mental health, social health and emotional well-being. Right, so people lack the empathy at a certain stage to really deliver on all points of the patient care. I don't think that people, it's not that they don't, that they don't have empathy. It's just how we're trained. It's, yeah. it's medicine is very transactional. That's like when you go to the bank and you deposit a check, it's a transaction. It's not very fun or enjoyable. You go to the airport and you go through security. It's a very transactional interaction and uh, medicine tends to be very transactional. Not everybody's like that. Some people have a great bedside matter and spend a lot of time with people. But the way we really train our clinicians at large is to think about people that way, which is how you see them presented on rounds, which is how you see people right now. So this is a 48-year-old with high blood pressure, high cholesterol who presents with X, Y, and Z. And it's all a bunch of diseases all disease focused or dysfunctions and we tend not to think about the person as the number one priority we think about the disease first then the person 
And I think it should be reversed. Person first. Yeah, person first. Disease. Nice. You well, think that it? it's a benefit to, I feel like doctors and physicians in general are in like high stress situations. So being able to limit your emotional ties to that patient, you think that makes it easier and gives you more clarity when going, when doing your job? Yeah, to a degree, but you can also have a humanistic conversation like you would at the dinner table where you have a friend or a cousin that um, you could spend hours talking to because there's a human connection, but not have such a deep connection that you're married to them. There's still that separation of the various of how deep emotional ties go from is it just a colleague? Is it a friend to a spouse? And so really that emotional connection that's being humanistic with a colleague, how I think you should also be with patients. They're people at the end of the day. And so you don't have to have that same emotional tie that you're going to be with a a loved one that you're married to. But still it's right now it's super transactional and person's not the top priority. It's the disease is the top priority. And that's how we write our notes. And that's how we talk to each other. It's all, it's not about, Last time I heard somebody actually ask, how's the patient actually doing? Like emotionally, how's the family doing? It was almost never. It's like yeah. When they say, how's the patient doing? How are they responding to the medication? Yeah, they want to ask stuff about things that they can track and measure and improve and all that good stuff. So these are just opportunities for us as a society to do better. And this is not picking on anybody. This is, you find this in every country that we have data on it's medicine is traditionally practiced very similar institution to institution, private office to private office, country to country. So this is a systemic issue of how do we do better and really humanize medicine to a much, much better degree than we do now where it doesn't where right now it's reminds me of a bank. Yeah, the bank serves a purpose, but going through the bank is boring. <laughs> it's not that fun. There's not really any emotional interaction. And people who are sick or have a medical condition, there should at least be more of an interaction than you would get than a bank. But, at usually, but usually you don't find that. Nice. So obviously you have the experience and the awareness of this industry because you're in the trenches. You've been part of it for years. And you've been able to identify problems, certain shortcomings that you want to improve that you think can be improved upon. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about Vory Health and how you guys are actually going about doing that, but talk about it in a way by sharing your guys' milestones. What have you guys done recently to help get you closer to your mission as a company? It's building partnerships and because you can't, you don't change the world or transform care by doing it all by yourself. It's a mixture of awesome team, the right mindset and the right partnerships. And so there's a mixture of what are you building yourself to actually transform care delivery? But then how are you helping people, various people and stakeholders like the primary care providers can, can, can use help, their people. The surgeons can use help, their people. The patients can use help. Their people, the insurance company, which is people, can use help. They have unmet needs. They're paying for all of this, all of this care. The employers could use help. They're paying for the care. They also want their employees to be happier, 
less medical, not, not needing as many medical resources, less days of absenteeism, et cetera, et cetera. And so behind all of these enterprises, health system, um, to an employer, to an insurance company, they're just people. Every single one, I, I think people don't think about it much as there's just a person. There's a group of people behind each of these enterprises and these entities. What are those unmet needs of those individuals and how can you help make their life better? Because everybody has pain points in their day. And what, are the, what pain points does the insurance company have compared to the employer, compared to the patient, compared to the primary care provider, compared to the surgeon, the physical therapist in the communities? that we can also drive and help them to make their life better, which will also make the patient's life better, which also grows partnerships. And so really think about how do you make everybody's life better, not just the patient's? How do you make partners' lives better? How do you make the insurance company's life better? And it's better to be a partner with an insurance company to try to help their unmet needs. They're paying for the healthcare. And so everybody has unmet needs. You can't just help one group or focus on a group, one group. Nice. And so two things really come to mind when you, when I was listening to you talk, one, it's if you want to go fast go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. And I think that's the real value of building partnerships and also a rising tide lifts all boats. Like if everyone's focused on getting better and building synergistic partnerships, then at the end of the day, it just benefits everybody. It's a win-win situation. So I like that approach. <laughs> as far as like other companies, like other, like you're talking about partnerships, other companies, other brands that are looking to also tackle problems within the healthcare industry, what advice would you have for those companies and how to go about that? It's really, what problem are you really trying to solve? Can you write it in a sentence? What, is, what really are you trying to solve? Who's your customer? You might have more than one customer. There might be multiple types of stakeholders within a customer journey. Healthcare is always a little bit different because the person paying for the healthcare tends not to be using it, right? So it's usually a self-employer or a health or health insurance company usually paying the bill, but they tend not to be consuming the actual medical product or healthcare service. And so there's usually a disconnect because the person buying it's not using it, which is part of what makes the healthcare system a bit more challenging and different than other sectors is you know, the person doing the purchasing is not using it. It's like the mom, dad, if you, if you had that, or aunt, uncle who paid your tuition for college. So they're not using the, they're not using it, but they're buying it. <laughs> and and so really, who's who's your unmet need? Who's your partners? Who else is in the space? And how are you different or better than the others? Like, how is there a better mousetrap out there? And so really, it's is the timing right? It would be great if we could teleport. Right, get rid of all the airplanes, just teleport instantaneous. There's no such technology that's even close to that. So it's a great idea. And it's timing's off. Society's technology is not far along enough to just teleport and not need the use of airplanes right now. And so, first, it's is the timing right to actually operationalize an idea? Is the market opportunity big enough? Are you going to be able to serve one customer? Is it only one customer? 
is it millions of customers? Like how big can it get? And it's not always the size per se, but the more customers you have, the more change you bring to society and the bigger the impact you can have. Do you have the right team with you? And then it's really looking in the mirror. What are you good at yourself? What aren't you so good at yourself? And so if you're not, the things that you're not good at, you need team members who are good at those things. And then it's, I would recommend having people on your team who think differently than you do. I'll be aligned on a mission and a vision. But if everybody thinks the same, then everybody thinks the same versus having differing opinions of how to actually achieve the mission actually makes you more powerful. Right? There's multiple ways to climb Everest. Mm. Tomorrow, this might be the best way because of weather or this change, but this person sees that this is the better route and that's actually the better route and you didn't see that. So different vantage points. And, and then really understanding those unmet needs, those pain points of the stakeholders and customers. Like, how are you helping them? Like, when you think about it, like, people want their pain points fixed. They don't care about yours. Like, how are you making my life better? Mm. And people consume products because it makes their life better, which includes fun. Instagram, fun, social networking, entertainment. How do you make my life better? And that's how people really consume products is, did you make my life better because I saved money? Did you like make my life better because I had more fun? I laughed more, entertainment. Did you make my life better because it's more convenient? I can just order a package online and it's at my doorstep, Amazon. <laughs> Did you make my life better because I don't have to take time out of my day and can multitask? Somebody else can grocery shop for me. And I don't like grocery shopping, so I can hire a service to do that. You made my life easier. I pay you in exchange, but that premium was worth it to me. Not to everybody, but to me. As and who are so who are you? What pain points are you solving for? And a lot of the startups I talk to or, or help from time to time is not a clear, not very clear on who they're trying to help, like with utter focus. Well, it's great that you want to help everybody, but who are you helping in the next six months and 12 months? Who, who is that? What are you actually going to do when that's really defined? Who do you need to help you achieve that goal? And then based once you define that, where you think you need to get to or where you can get to over the next 12 to 18 months, how much money would that cost to get there? Which is mostly in the early days, hiring people, right? Human capital. You're paying people salaries and benefits on your team is where most of the funds of the early stage startup go is paying salaries. And how long, how much money do you need to sustain yourself for a year and a half to two years while you have little revenue? How much capital do you think you need to raise to achieve the mission? What's the mission look like? How do you define success? How do you know you're successful? How do you know you're satisfied? And that's defined differently by every single person. And if you get a different opinion by who you talk to, so really what gets you out of the bed in the morning is the excitement of the opportunity, the team, the passion you have. You can't teach passion. You can certainly grow it. And what are your markers of achievement in the Olympics? Is it the gold medal? Is it like, is it how fast you're going to run? It's how, it's like how many practices are you going to do? Is it how many customers you have? How many patients you serve? 
how many geographies you serve, how many product lines you have, like what customers think about you. Obviously, there's a mixture of all those things, but how do you define success? And then how do you know it's working? Nice. I think that was a great segment. That's a lot of knowledge packed up in there. Pretty much, thanks for sharing, like pretty much the components and the building blocks of success and the different things to think about when approaching a problem. Really, it all comes down to asking the right questions, surrounding yourself around like-minded individuals that can learn and grow with you to help solve that problem. But at the end of the day, when it comes to solving that problem, all you're trying to do is reduce friction. Healthcare workflows and the entire industry in itself is already complex as it is. So if you can figure out a way to capitalize on your strengths and build up your weaknesses to reduce friction, I think that's the real value add to the industry. Right. Sure. And then it's it's understanding because some things you have look is what are people's true pain points? And Customers don't always know. Like there's the old Henry Ford quote. If I asked people back in the day, they would have asked for a faster horse. No imagination that you could have a carriage or car that drove on its own. People are pretty good at giving criticism or feedback on a potential offering or a prototype or storyboard. But most people have trouble imagining things that don't exist mm-hmm. in their head. So why do most homes have have to be staged with furniture to sell. People have a hard time imagining what the house looks like with furniture in it. They need to see it. They need to visually see it, touch it, hold it. And so why do houses sell a lot for more money and sell faster if you stage it? Because the average person has trouble visualizing what could be versus seeing it right in their eye, right in front of them. And so looking at like the Apple example, when they brought out the iPhone and they were looking at BlackBerry, people were like complaining that they wanted a better keyboard and better than was it really that that needed a better keyboard, which assumes in the, the way you think about keyboards is with traditional keys. They wanted something that was more responsive and took up less screen real estate and was just less, just function easier. When you typed it, it was always consistent. And so it wasn't that somebody actually wanted a, better physical keyboard per se. Is that really what their unmet need is? Their unmet need is they wanted more screen real estate, something that had a more, it was more consistently used. It didn't stick. It didn't do this. So yes, they wanted a better keyboard, but that doesn't say anything that had to be physical. They wanted a more convenient, easier to use that wouldn't stick, et cetera, et cetera. So Apple's solution for that, when you really define the unmet need, was we're going to build a digital touch keyboard that comes and goes as you touch the screen. It doesn't take up real estate when you're not using it. There's no mechanical parts, so it won't, it won't stick. And, but other manufacturers are looking, the, the customer says they want a better keyboard. The customer also said they wanted a faster horse. Does it have to be? And so you have to really understand when you, if you do a focus group of what are you trying to get out of that? Because people sometimes are not very good at explaining what their unmet need is. They can allude to it, but sometimes people aren't very good at verbalizing. So sometimes watching people or understanding really what's their day like to really understand their true pain point. Then how do you make a solution for that? Mm. Or does your solution help them? Because your solution would be awesome. But if it makes somebody's day longer or requires them to do more work, 
they're not going to use it. Hmm. Right? If you're making their day longer and it's not for fun, if you make a device that's fun, it makes people laugh like a game or a social network where people are like, can lose themselves surfing the internet. That's a, that you're on the unmet need you're feeling is boredom and giving people fun and easy access to escape the reality of what they're sitting in at the moment, sitting in the airport, the bank work, they're bored out of their mind. So you gave them an escape, but if they're actually, if it's something that they have to use at work for their job, did you make their life easier or did you add steps to their job? Even if you're, even if your thing's awesome, if you if you making them do more work, the chance they use it is pretty slim. Mm. Man, that's another. So I've watched a lot of startups build like a, what they thought was a great offering, but it required people to do extra work than they were than they already had to do at baseline. What do you think the uptake of that was? People weren't doing that. They, they, just didn't, they didn't use it. it. Was more work. Yeah. People want their life to be easier less painful things that make somebody's life easier people use did you make their life how did you make their life easier patient did you help them get out of pain faster telemedicine oh i can see somebody and i can see somebody same day i don't have to wait four weeks for an appointment i don't have to drive anywhere convenience so really do you understand what they're chasing nice i like the way that you approach questions and how your mind thinks because you give like a super comprehensive overview and answer but how i want to dig a little deeper into that as far as applying that to your own company and so are there any sort of obstacles or roadblocks that kind of stick out to you and how did you overcome them like any moments of um, adversity that you've had to face I think any new, all new startups, endeavors, projects, a new initiative inside of a current company has resistance. It's something new, right? It's, it takes work. And I, I think part of the startup world, but even new initiatives, even if it's not a startup, an initiative, a work group of four people who's working on a project for four months at an employer, it's a mini startup, right? You're doing a mini project. It's a mini company. You're just not operationalizing it outside of the enterprise. Is the news and the movies tend to glorify all of the startup. There's parts of it that are not fun. <laughs> it's like going to school. Was every single part of college amazing? Where you're like, oh, that was just so awesome. No. The experience was awesome. The journey was awesome. The degree was awesome. The friendships were awesome. The term paper at two in the morning that you didn't want to write about for English class was not awesome. And so there's parts of like that of building a company is when I've mentored some folks who people tend to glamorize parts of it and just their expectations are like, I have to do all this writing and fill out these legal forms and do the Yeah, it's good. It's a business. It's the experience and it's changing the world. It's the friendship. It's, it's trying to change a paradigm. It's not easy. The status quo exists for a reason and it will resist you. The, the easiest thing for people to do is to not change. Next day they get up, they go to work. They do the same exact thing they did yesterday. They don't use any new products. They don't do anything this. And so trying to get people to pay attention, change, 
adopt new things takes time. And inside of an organization, there'll be people who are easier to work with to start. Those are the early adopters. Those are the people who even you can find them inside of every organization. You need to sometimes help uh, people who know the organization of who are those champions who would be very interested in this type of work that you're doing new, who want to help you because either they find it interesting, they get something out of it. It's just something different from their day. It's the people who are camping outside the Apple store the night before to get the new iPhone. Most people don't, aren't willing to do that. They'll, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till it gets shipped to me. Some people are like, I need it now. I want it now. I'm going to put a tent outside the Apple store. Wait. <laughs> Those champions you can find in almost every organization for any new initiative. It's sometimes just the hardest part of working on partnerships with people is identifying who those people are who'd be lined up outside the Apple store in a tent waiting for the new iPhone who are analogous to your initiative with whoever you're trying to partner with. Who are those people? That's, that can be some of the hardest part. Then once you identify who those are, is it's making, how do you get to them and have a conversation with them? But sometimes the hardest part is actually knowing or figuring out who those individuals are. Because most people don't, most people are not willing to wait out and camp outside the Apple store all, all night waiting for the new iPhone. Most people are, no, thanks. You're never going to do that. That's going to be the normal response. That's what that with a new product. They're going to say the same thing to you. Uh, they got a thousand things to do. They got dinner tonight with their significant other. Their, their kids are all pissed off from something yesterday that happened. And they're late on this work thing they have to do for their boss. And they have a thousand things that they're trying to work on. Why should they give you time? They have a meeting competing priority. Why do they give you time? Why do they care? How do you make all you're doing is sucking up time from them on first pass. So how are you making their life better? And then are you talking to the right person? Because if you're not talking to the right person, you're just um, wasting each other's time because nothing's going to come of it on first pass. Awesome. I think that's a good way to end kind of the main section of the podcast. We've been covering a lot of high level, high value topics relating to what you're doing and it's been fun diving into your mindset and how you think about things but i like to end each episode with a little lighter exercise with something i call the rapid fire round so i'm just going to ask you a set of questions and you give me whatever answer you come up with okay mm -hmm. okay question number one what is your favorite book of all time think and grow rich oh nice number two who is the most influential person in your life or career uh, parents Number three, what is one goal you want to accomplish this year? No, that's a good question. I have so many that come to mind in terms of, we'll come back to that one. Okay. Number four, what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? Truly listen, not only to other people, but to yourself, listen to your passions, don't be scared if others tell you that you shouldn't do that. If it's not illegal and if it's ethical, there are no boundaries. It's your life. You're the only one living it. You will always have people, no matter what you do in your life, who will tell you no. 
or tell you that they think the path you should have done a different path, no matter what path you choose. President of the United States, oh, you really want to have all that fame or you want to have all those people following you. You can't walk down the street anymore. Half the country doesn't like you. You really want that? Or a surgeon, all those late hours, you're not going to be home for dinner. All the, There's always going to be somebody who says that the route is not good, no matter what you choose. So you should just choose and follow your own passion. And, and I think some of the best things to say is learn how to say no. Like your time is precious. You don't have time to work on everything. And if you're too generous with your time, you won't get any, you won't actually accomplish anything. You'll be doing, you'll be helping people all the time and you won't get any of your own work done. And that's what I would tell future South is, is it's okay to change course. It's okay to change path and it's okay to not listen to X, Y, and Z. It's, you should listen to yourself and just be super honest of which direction you want to go and drown out the critics. Nice. Get rid of the noise. That reminds me of a, another saying that I've heard, which is you can be the biggest, ripest, juiciest peach on the tree, but there's always somebody who doesn't like peaches. <laughs> so it's yeah, there's, there's always critics. You're never going to please 100% of people and, you don't, and that's okay. It's, it's really, are you satisfied with when you go to bed at night? Are you working on a mission that's important to you? Are you helping other people? Are you helping other people achieve their goals at the same time achieving yours? The rest, the critics don't, the critics don't matter. They're, they will always be there, mm-hmm. no matter. And the more successful you get, the more critics you'll have because people, more people know you. Awesome. I think that's a perfect piece of advice, but we're not done yet. Let's go back to the previous question that we skipped. And uh, <laughs> what is Yeah, my- goals would be to really heavily focused on the business right now is is growing as, as many partnerships really as I can in the shortest time period that's feasible without burning myself out or the team out. And so it's really when you look back of what was accomplished over the last 12 months, you're like exceeds expectations. Nice. Awesome. Perfect way to end today's episode. Ryan, just want to thank you again just for jumping on and sharing your story, sharing your journey, sharing a little bit of how you think and approach different problems and situations. But before you go, where can people learn more about you? Where can they connect with you and learn more about Vori Health? Yeah, you can go to our website at www.vorihealth.com. People, it's not very hard to find my email, LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn and reach out. Might be the, some of the easiest ways. And uh, that's me. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll be sure to include some of those links in the resources section as well. But with that being said, that ends today's episode. Catch you guys on the next one.